Welcome to Bugs and Beards, the podcast home for everything fly fishing and fly tying. Kick back as we sit down and talk with some of your favorite fly tires and fishermen while we discuss with them the tips and techniques they've learned on the river and behind the vice so that you can use those lessons learned to make your time more effective. Hello everybody and welcome to Bugs and Beards. This is your host Nick Malloy along with our other host Sean Holsinger. Hey guys. Today we have a super special guest. Some call him the Trout Tornado, also known as Pat Weiss. Welcome, Pat Weiss. I, I've been called special before, but not that way. Trout Tornado. <laughs> yeah. We've heard things, plenty of things. So uh, just getting into it, uh, how about we just uh, a quick introduction on yourself, what you do for a living, um, kind of how long you've been fishing slash competing, uh, just to get to know you for anybody that doesn't know you out there. All right. Well, well, I guess I've been fly fishing for probably the better part of 35 or 36 years. Um, I live in Pleasant Gap right now. Pennsylvania. Pleasant Gap, Pennsylvania, just outside of State College, the greater State College metro area. Uh, live there with my wife, Karen. I'm a fish health biologist by trade. Do a little bit of guiding on the weekends here and there. And uh, I guess I've been, this is, I guess it's my ninth year competing. Jeez. <laughs> it seems like about 29, but yeah. That's it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd be where you are today? When I started it, I didn't know that sort of thing existed. Right. Um. And then after I did find out that it existed, that was the, I mean, the goal was to get on the team, get on the world team and, you know, have the, have the team finally medal because the team had never medaled. Right. And that was, that was it. That was like the, the focus, the singular, you know, arrow focus just to, to try to get that done. And you've been on the world's team for most of those years? Um, no, not, well, a good portion. I think this upcoming is my sixth. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty so, good. It's pretty good. Yeah, no it. doubt. It's more than I, more than I thought it was going to be. What was it like, like your first year, like even like technique wise, what were, cause it probably wasn't like 10 foot rods back then or anything. The first year of competing. Yeah. Well there, yeah, there was, there were, um, it depended on where you were from the the availability of all these new style rods and materials and hooks and all that stuff was 10 percent of what it is today right like it's incredible how how much more available all that stuff is you are basically getting on foreign companies websites and if you wanted a, a designated you know high-end quote-unquote euro rod hmm. Uh, Cabela's had the CZN and that came in 10 footers. That was back then? Mm hmm. They were the first one in the U.S. Yeah, I remember dad had one of those for quite a while. Really? Yeah. That's the one that I started on. Uh, actually, I didn't start on that. I started on a, uh, I had a nine and a half foot, it was a Reddington CPX. Boy, that thing was stiff. 
Yeah, just like you like. <laughs> it was it was too stiff for even me. Yeah. That's... I, I still use it to this day on uh, on lake sessions. Really? Yeah, it was a, it was a five weight, and I wish they still made it because it was a, a it was a good rod. But they only made it for like one year. I think I got in on it the last year that they had it, and it was gone. So you still like for bank sessions? You use it? Yep, I use it for bank sessions, and for the first couple of years, I used it as a a spare. Uh, on the up. on the on the boat huh but yeah i still i still run it on on i still rig it up on bank sessions all the time that's pretty neat five mm-hmm. weight nipping with a five weight you could do whatever you want yeah huh. uh, well when i say bank sessions i meant lake bank sessions. oh I, yeah i know i i do fish it uh it's my primary streamer rod for rivers still to this day did you start nymphing with it though yeah okay that's what i meant yeah you could yeah, and it was, like I said, it was a little too much. Right. It was a little too much. I It didn't take me long with that to figure out that I needed to get something else. And the only thing that was even close to the price range that I could afford at the time was that CZN. Yeah. Yeah, and they're still around. They're still cheap. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad rod, nope. especially for the price. It's just, there's there's aspects of it that don't fit what i like to do right but it's not a bad rod it's not crazy when you how you like evolve as a fisherman and find those things out like you start with those things and then years later you're like yeah there's just a couple things that i don't i can't use it yeah it's pretty neat yeah i was was lucky early on one of the the next rod i bought after the czn was the sage one and it's still the same one i'm using (laughs) how many times have you broken it I broke the tip once, and I broke the second section once. Once I was trying to pop a snag on a streamer on a down log in Bosnia, popped the top off, and the other one I hit a tree in my back cast and broke the second section. Other than that, it's it's never broken on me during normal use. Jeez, and that's that, impressive. That is. It's a, they're good rods. That yeah. would that would be a ton of fish. That rod's been some places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Speaking of that, um, you know, being being on the team um, for for six years, you've been some pretty neat places. Do you want to you want to dive into that? Some notable ones, or even yeah, what? Even domestically, we've been to a lot of different places. You know, places I certainly would have never gone on my own. You know, I I rarely ventured out of. Central PA. PA. Yeah. You, know. you rarely need to. <laughs> yeah. I just, I had no desire to yeah. to fly anywhere to fish or you know, anything like that. But the first year, went down to North Carolina, then Oregon, North Carolina a couple other times, Northern California, you know, all over the interior Rockies, New York, you know, it's just Virginia, Georgia. You know, places that I didn't even know had good trout fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Any trout fishing. That's like the second or third time we've talked about California in a podcast. And that is not a place I would think of as trout. Yeah. Northern, yeah. Not at all. Yeah. The one dude, uh, I forget his name. He was at Nationals this year. No. He came to visit us at Nationals. Do you remember that Ryan Wilbur? You remember him? Oh, yeah. I remember Ryan. He lives in Northern California. Mm -hmm. And he said there's like the 
some of, I mean, that's where the rainbows hmm. in the Cloud River. Right. So. Yeah. I, I, now that you say that, I'm thinking, you know, your ocean run and stuff like that. But being a Pennsylvania guy and having streams in our, practically our backyard everywhere you go. Yeah, it's a little weird to yeah. think about. Yeah. They're a little more spread out there, but it was it was really good, really good mm-hmm. fishing. Yeah, the northern part of the state's a different animal from the middle or the southern part. Yeah, you know, in all facets. Yeah, mm-hmm. the graphics, everything about it. It's yeah. just it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. What about not domestically, internationally? Well, let's see. It, uh, Czech Republic. Bosnia, Slovakia, and then Italy this past year, the one year we were at home in Vail. And then, I guess it is 2019 now, so at the end of this year, Tasmania. That's what's your, What was your favorite one? Not Italy. I know that. Bosnia. Yeah? Why? Other than the lake, it was all native fish just air clear water like you would never think nobody ever thinks of bosnia right war torn anything good yeah. about it you you think of the russian wars and stuff like that you walk down the street there's still bullet holes in the street signs and in the on the uh stucco on the sides of the houses and stuff hmm. like that and they still they tell you oh where you're where you're gonna be you know it's okay a lot of the other rivers there's still landmines you know you gotta yeah. we didn't have to deal with any of that but i know in the summer, I guess the late spring before we went out there, they had huge flooding in other parts of the country. And the flooding was eroding the banks away, and the landmines were rolling down, and the river was blowing up. <laughs> I think wow. I saw videos yeah. of that somewhere. Yeah. So that's what I thought of when I thought of Bosnia. And you get, you get outside of Sarajevo, you know, an hour or so, it looks like Lycoming County. Just beautiful. Looks like a mix of Lycoming County and Montana. Hmm. Huh. And the wow. rivers are just, they just pop out of the ground. And they were, I mean, they were water 10 feet deep. Crystal clear. And you could, if your eyes were good enough, you could read the date on a coin at the bottom. <laughs> wow. You know, they were that clear. Nobody around? Like no pollution or anything? Um, One of the rivers was really, really, really bad. The, most of the other ones, we were relatively high on them, uh, but it's just it's just little farming communities. Right. Basically, you couldn't tell the difference if you were there in 2004 or 1864. Right. They're kind of still operating the same way. So the only kind of real pollution that there was was, you know, basically just like septic system type stuff. Sure. And it isn't that big of a deal. They weren't doing any stocking, giant, humongous grayling, just, just humongous grayling, awesome looking brown trout, and the they were hard. Yeah, they were hard, the hardest fish I've ever fished for. Really, <laughs> but other places and grayling aren't that difficult. This place you could see them. I stood on a one group of grayling and I fished to them for like four hours. Couldn't even make one hit. Hmm. They, they were. They were tough. What do you think? Like, just, there's no pressure, is there? Well, I mean, there's a big, there's a big fly fishing industry in Bosnia. So these oh. places get fished, not like, not, not like, like here. here yeah. uh, 
but they're just a different animal. They're just the brown trout that were there, you know, we kind of understood those. Right. They were just spooky brown trout. The grayling, man, I don't know. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen grayling in, in any other countries that acted that way. And pretty much everybody we talked to said the same thing. Like, oh, these fish are different. So you didn't target those in your sessions? Not really. Not really. Um, if at all possible, we tried to fish for brown trout. Right. And there was enough of them there that you could do that. You needed to catch some grayling. And some of the places you needed to catch, you know, 50-50. But there was enough brown trout just about everywhere that we were fairly comfortable doing that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen pictures from Bosnia of those. I mean, but that doesn't do it any justice. Yeah. At all. It, it it's something. It's it's really really something. And you were saying, I remember talking to you about Italy. Um, a lot of the 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 rivers there were so heavily polluted, which you don't really think about that as an American. Right. And it was really, there's no bug life, you said, because it was all septic. Well, especially down low on some of the rivers, when you're looking at the land use around them, it was either giant apple orchards or vineyards. So you're getting a runoff from those. And it's the pesticides, pesticides yeah. that have killed the bug life off on the lower ends of some of these places. And then those, um, they stock those, correct? There was a lot of stocking there. Yeah, there was, there was a lot. It's hard to say whether they're like that all the time or if they did it to, for the competition to try to even things out or up the fish numbers. Right. That Unless you're there, you're, you'll never really know the right. answer to that. Right. So is that more streamer fishing? and? It was everything. Um, the way most of these are, if you go into it and only fish one way, you're, you're going to get worked. Right. Um, I know just like in the last session on this one venue, I was fishing streamers. The guy above me was fishing dries. Then he would switch to dry dropper. And then I was fishing regular nymphs. And you just, as your water type changes, or even as the sun comes up or the sun goes down, you, you got to be, you have to be flexible. You have to be able to two different techniques and know when to do them yeah adapt gordon yeah. kept talking about adapting to the situation yeah yeah and that was one of the big things that i wanted to talk about which is a pretty interesting segue that you started into that um that's kind of like uh to me that's what you're known for is adapting and that's what like you know in my experience uh seeing you and your teammates fish um your, your numbers are a lot higher in a lot of the sessions, not only because you have experience doing it more than a lot of us, but um, a, a lot of the things you'd say would be like, yeah, I just figured them out soon. Enough. I just figured them out quickly. Well, I mean, they're just trout, but you figure them out quicker than the rest of us. And uh, again, what you're saying is I figured them out, not just at the beginning of my session, but like when the sun came out. Yeah. When, when this changed, it's not only... You know, you're not dry drop. If they're eating this fly at, at this drift or, or whatever, right. but you get into a different water type, change up. And that's, that's like, that's the biggest thing that I've seen from you guys. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. So 
going going beyond what you're what you're talking about in Italy and Sean said about streamers. Um, I mean, let's get into that discussion. All right. Um, rarely is there a time where you could go and either while you're at home before you go to the water or if you're pre-fishing for a tournament, say, all right, this is what's happening, this is what I'm going to do, and then you go to go fish or you get in a session and you do that and it works and you beat everybody or you have a really good day. It just, it's rare. Right. Yeah. Um, the fish are on their own agenda. They're doing what they're doing and, and what you think they're going to do or what you've prepared to do means nothing. And they're, they're all individuals. Right. So even within a, you know, a hundred yard stretch, you've got them figured out, you know, say in a two foot deep chop water, all right, you got them figured out, but you know, there's other ones 20 feet away on the bank in like woody debris that are on a totally different program. Right. And the, one of the things that this competition fishing kind of opened me up to was how to know when to change and what to change to a lot quicker than I used to. Reading the water and, and figuring it out was always one of the things that I liked the best about it, just figuring it out. But you don't have the, the luxury of getting it wrong for half the day. Right. You yeah, you got to do it quickly. Right. Um, for me, I think it, it helps that I've done a lot of fishing, a lot of different kinds before I started this. So it's usually some sort of scenario that reminds me of something else that'll make me think of something and you know i kind of come up with a plan that way and it's literally cast to cast you know sometimes sometimes you hit it right away you're like okay here's the scenario it's these kind of fish i think they might be doing this and it starts to work you know your water type changes a little bit or it starts raining or something all right i think i think they're going to do this and you change and it works more often than not it's like all right they're going to do this all right they don't want that well, they don't want that, must mean they're doing this. And then you try that. And then you try something else. And you try something else. Then if it's not working, then that's when you either got to fish or cut bait. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go to a water type that is totally different and try to figure them out. So that's your cut bait whenever you go to a different water type. That's when you... That's one of them. Yeah. You know, it, if you have different water types and you have a, you're on a piece of water that fish will be in all the different water types then yeah you know there's a there's an internal clock that just kind of pops and you're like i gotta change i gotta change i gotta i gotta try something else right yeah i think that's one of the biggest uh i don't want to say it, faults of the fishermen is not being willing to change like i i mean it's a little off subject but i remember one time we were we used to troll with spinners down at uh canoe creek on canoe creek lake for trout we catch tons of them but there was one time we were there fishing and literally we was changing when the clouds rolled in mm -hmm. if, if it was sunny we were fishing i think it was silver that day if when the sun was out it was silver and as soon as the clouds rolled in pull that silver off third gold one out and we had trout right back on and as soon as they rolled back out we switched it up again it took that 
knowledge to change and the, but the willingness to change on top of it and i think that's a big downfall of a lot of fishermen yeah we hear that a lot i mean we had people in here a couple or last weekend and they're like well i, I don't really change much that's yeah. why that's why i was asking you about the the silver bullet theory is people think that this is going to work all the time yeah like you know yeah. i you know sometimes like yeah you can catch fish i don't feel like changing if you're just like wreck fishing or just just out having a day right you can catch fish in water types with the different types of nymphs, but you might not catch the six there. You right. might catch the one. One, yep. That's the thing that the competition fishing really drove home was, yeah, you've got a, a good baseline. You've got a good default for a certain piece of water. And you can always do, you know, pretty well, sometimes really well. But in that period of time, you need to do better than everybody else, including people that maybe have better water, be, better water, or easier water, yeah. or just plain way more fish. So you've got to figure it out quicker than they do. You know, maybe with less to work with. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes you get, you know, you just get stuff that you can't work with. But trying to figure it out quicker, do it better, do it faster is the that's kind of the hook of the whole game for me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exciting. I don't really succeed at it much, but <laughs> someday I'll get there. Maybe on lakes I do, but we won't we won't go into that. All right. So along that same path, then, what's your thought process when you walk into a body of water? What are you looking for? What are you you know keying on? What's going to make you decide to use a squirmy in this hole over a pertagon or not Spring Creek? We're not talking about Spring. Yeah. We know, we, we know, you know. Uh, (laughs) I think I kind of answered it without even thinking of it. Really, I I look for things that remind me of something I've already done. Right. You know, I look at a piece of water. This reminds me of this. This reminds me of that. And it gives me something to, a place to start when I get there. Right. So, you know, if it's, at this point in time, you know, being all these different places, I've fished a lot of different types of water. There, I'm sure there's still plenty of types out there that I haven't gotten to, but they're, I deal with them a lot less frequently than I used to. So there's usually something that reminds me of it. Okay, this was like this. This was like that. The fish did this here, did that there. Hmm. You might have six or seven just within sight that, all right, this reminds me of this place, you know, 20 years ago. This was yesterday. This was this. This was there. And usually that's where I'll start with whatever worked in the scenario the last time I had it, along with what I know from, you know, most recent information. Right. But that's usually where my brain goes first. That's interesting. I mean, that, you know, it also takes a lot of confidence. Um, and, you know, even growing as a fisherman, like, you know, a lot of anglers might not have that confidence to to even try that again because maybe they heard something that said, you know, well, you know, caddis are hatching or, or whatever. They want emergers. Well, these fish sitting in this type of water aren't going to eat emergers. You know what I mean? So people might not have that confidence or even the confidence going back to the changing and everything um, to know when to change. For example, if you're fishing a just a riffle any just a a good rolling riffle that we all love 
and you know they're fishing just beating it up and just not catching any fish and they're like man i don't don't know what to do there's no fish here and they just move on but like changing up in the middle of that changing tech not even flies drifts speeds angles everything um it requires a lot of confidence i've i've noticed because i'll do weird stuff i'm starting to do weird stuff that i would have never done because i'm confident like oh i'm just gonna change this oh there's a fish and you know that that takes some confidence so how like when you're when you're fishing and even when you're guiding is how do you build that confidence like how do you translate that to to other people because you have it you might not even know you have it but that's just your experience talking that build that you know yeah i think part of it comes from stock trout fishing you know, when yeah. you're younger, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same today, but like opening day of trout season was Christmas, New Year's, Easter and everything yeah. rolled into one. Right. You get out and you got 25 yards to yourself. Yep. You can't go up. You can't go down. There's people here. There's people there. So you stay there and you keep doing different things until you can catch what you know what what's available to you there right right and i did that you know a lot and even now if you're just fishing the more popular things in central pa you go on a weekend you're gonna see a lot of people even on on a weekdays anymore you're not gonna have a whole bunch of water to fish so you got you know maybe you got 100 yards if you're lucky so you just you just fish it you know see what you can get out of it you know fish it again whatever and then once i started doing the competitions i intentionally went to those places and things like that fish behind people or jam myself up in a crappy little section and just just do a bunch of different things out of your comfort zone that's a, i think that's a big thing isn't it yeah it is if you want to push yourself to get better at that sort of thing right if you don't, then it's just a pain and nobody, you know, wants to do that. It's not fun, but you're going to be, you're going to be faced with it Yeah. more now than ever, especially if you're fishing the, you know, the popular places, you're going to drive however may long it, it is, you get there and there's just people everywhere. Yep. Right. You either drive up and down road fish for two hours trying to find somewhere that's open or you just take what's available to you and fish it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there another issue like there is you get in a mindset where you think you've caught fish here before. This is where the fish are going to be laying at, and you overlook all the other water that's there, but there's fish all through the water, and you're passing up on a ton of fish. That's So, like, I, I'm just sitting here thinking, listening to you, like, that's what I need to be doing this year. I need to just stick myself in a stretch of water you know, a 50 yard stretch of water and not leave until I catch fish from it to learn how to fish the areas that I would all my life would have just walked by that. I know there's fish in there now because I've, I've learned to fish them, but I haven't learned to reach my full potential there. Right. It's, it's a, it's a, if you're really going to do it, like I used to do it quite a bit as I was, you know, progressing in this game on purpose. You got to have your mind right to do it. You know, you're like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to fish this piece. And I'm going to fish it till I'm tired of fishing it. And then I'm going to go home. 
and it's so it's not for everybody fishing that way. No, absolutely not. No. But and you don't have to go that crazy about it. You know, you could just you know, there's people everywhere. There's this little section that looks too shallow. Let's give it a try. You know, spend 30 minutes in there and cover a, you know, a 10 yard piece over against the bank. You might be surprised what's there. Yeah. Then once you do that, it's not as big a deal when places are crowded anymore because you start to get used to catching fish where the parking, right by the parking areas that, you know, people walk past it to go to get the good stuff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it as much anymore. Yeah, and everybody says, you know, that's a popular place to fish. You know, that gets fished all the time. Then you can go in and catch fish. Right. Yeah, that's what's fun. Yeah, and I think that's also a good uh, a good lesson to learn here too because I know when I started nymph fishing, I tried over a couple years. I, I grew up fishing wets, and then I switched to dries. When I wanted to fish nymphs, I didn't have anybody to teach me. It was still early and in the Euro nymphing thing, so I didn't really, there was no knowledge of that. But I kept trying and trying, and one year I finally said, you know what, I'm not taking any other flies with me. The only box I'm taking is my nymph box. I'm going to figure this out this year. I'm not going to stop until I figure it out. And I finally did, but it took me doing that. And if you don't step out of the side, and I, I learned, I got three kids. I don't have the most amount of time. But I, so when I would, I would want to be as productive as I could when I was out there, but I wasn't being as productive as I could because I wasn't fishing to my full potential. So you just have to stop, take the time, get out of your comfort zone, and then you will be more productive on your fishing time. Yeah. Yeah. And this lends itself back to the silver bullet thing you're talking about is that especially, especially with wild brown trout to me that, you know, technique it, it almost always trumps flies. Flies. Mm-hmm. So if you say, I'm going to fish nothing but pheasant tails today, it forces you to fish them harder and smarter than if you would just give it a couple casts and like think that the fish are going to come to it because of what it looks like. You start to get and give them what they want. Right. You know, the, they're eating stuff down there. They're eating pieces of rocks. They're eating pieces of leaves. <laughs> yep. You know, and you got all this stuff going on. You know, maybe you just need to present it differently. And it, it takes a while. It took me a long time to really understand that that was going on. It did, it wasn't that big of a deal for me early on because I didn't have that many flies. You know, I don't really enjoy tying for the sake of tying all that much. So I had, you know, a handful of patterns that I like to fish, and those are what I fished. I just fish the daylights out of them in different ways and it just so happens that that translates to a lot of different things to the competition side or to going somewhere you've never been you know you go to some other state you don't know what kind of insects are in there you don't know this you don't know that you got your flies that that work you can use them to catch fish isn't that the neatest thing i i say it all the time here in the shop presentation over pattern I mean, there's always times where there's a certain color or there's this or there's that, but eight and a half times out of 10, you yep. know, you can, it, it just needs to be presented the way that they want it. Oh yeah. I, I kind of chuckle and laugh when guys just have to have the exact dubbing mixes, you know, is the ancient pattern from whatever. And 
it doesn't matter. The trout aren't being that picky. They're hungry, and and they're not looking at it that long either. Usually not. Yeah. 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 Depending on where you are. Yeah. I had Bruce. I forgot to tell you last night. Bruce texted me. Oh yeah. While we, <laughs> while we were here, actually, this guy that, that comes into the shop. Uh, he's he's a great great dude. Uh, you know, Bruce yeah. Tomaselli. Oh, no, I know Bruce. Goose. Yeah. Goose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he always tells, he always tells yeah. me. This is kind of funny, actually, because he always talks about you. Um, but he was text. He, he, I, I sent him a picture of a fly that I tied because he always asked me. He's like, what should I tie? I'm just, just fly, whatever. Right. So I sent him a picture of one of my Pertigons, and uh, he sent me one last night. I, we were here, and it was, it was, it was like perfect. I'm like, Bruce, I, I, I didn't even tie it that well. Like, it's my fly. I don't even tie it that well. And he's like, you know, should I fish this in the winter or should I fish this in the summer? Like, what should I do? Yeah. And I'm like, fish it whenever you want. It's just the, it's just the drift. Yep. Just whatever you want, you know? That's what's, that's what's kind of neat. Just, like, learning, um, even even just myself learning is I, I've started fishing just a few things, just variations of I mean, you have your different weights and and sink, right. sink rates and you know some flouncy things like a soft tackle here and there just that variation but yeah that's that's helped me tremendously just different yeah, small it, bugs it yeah. does and then it becomes even better if you do get somewhere where there is like a a color or something like that that you figure out alright this is really what they want and then you fish it like you do your normal stuff yeah, you know it works that much better. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, it's, it's really neat. You know, you you keep fish and you you open them up, you look inside them. You know, like I said, there's hemlock needles, there's rocks, yeah, yep. there's pieces yep. of metal. You know, just cigarette butts. Yeah, you just never know. Yeah, what's what's gonna be in there? They're like turkeys. You know, they're they're <laughs> they're inquisitive, they're dumb. Yep. Yeah, they're just dumb. They're so dumb that it doesn't make sense to us the way they act. So it makes them seem smart. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. turkeys yeah. are that way. They drive you crazy, but they're they're stupid. But they're they're hard to get close. They are. They just do things that don't make sense to us. And fish are the same way. It's a good know, way of thinking about it. They get moody. You know, they certainly get moody, and their mood changes. You know, day to day, sometimes hour to hour. Anybody that's ever fished Penns Creek knows how moody fish can get, especially when they're on the surface. It doesn't make any sense why they're doing one thing one minute and one the next. But it, yeah, and how they can two or three hatches come off at the same time, and how they'll key on one of them, not eat the other, but there's it's the same size or whatever, but they don't want the one. Right. So there's there's. The thing you have to remember is you're never getting a very big percentage of what's living in front of you when you're fishing. So if you have a lot of confidence and are really good with fishing your handful of flies a certain way, you know, you're always going to get a percentage of those fish and that might be enough to be a good day. You know, you're never going to get them all. No. They're just, you know, the dry fly, when it, comes time to dry fly fish and that's different because you're only fishing to the ones that are eating dry right so right. your pool of fish that are available are a lot smaller so that's when it gets really frustrating but even then you know a little uh angle change or a little different movement 
it sometimes can make a difference. You can take a fish that's eating, you know, sulfurs and get them to take a, a caddis. Right. Sometimes. Oh, right. not all the oh, time. Oh, definitely. But sometimes. Just that little, maybe twitching it or something, just something different. Yeah. So back to your tying, what percentage of your fishing time is consumed at, at your level? What can percentage is consumed by tying? It varies. Um, when I have a big tournament coming up, like a nationals or worlds or something like that, I will, I end up tying twice as much as I fish. Because I know once I get there, you know, there's only so much that wherever it is that I'm at at the time is going to translate to where I'm going to be. So I kind of figure that my time is better served preparing as many different things as I can at home. So when I get out there and actually start fishing there, should these things be on the menu, well, then I've saved myself that time from tying them out there and I'm ready to go and I can use that time for something else. Time becomes real short. Right. Yeah. Well, in that same aspect, how do you prepare, like this year, you're going to Tasmania. You can't just, you know, hop in the car and drive to Tasmania to pre-fish. So how do you prepare for something that's completely out of your realm or whatever you're normally used to fishing? The, the most important thing is to have your default covered. So whatever it is that you know if you showed up to something you've never seen before, what you're most likely to use, or when things get hard and you switch to your your own personal default, you need to have that stuff covered. Right. Like pheasant tails and waltz worms and stuff like that that I fish a lot. I can't go to one of these big tournaments and not have that stuff ready. That's just, it's irresponsible. Right. You know, it's, right. you're wasting your own time. You need to have that stuff covered. So when you get out there and you find something different, you spend your time tying that. Instead of... Right. You have one less thing on your mind, and then it's just simply time. Like, there simply is not enough time to cover all these bases while you were there. Because that stuff kind of normally happens. Like, I remember stories of, uh, of like, uh, the, the British Columbia Lake competition where they were using... I think they were using mice... Or something in their in their sessions, like how do you you don't prepare for that stuff? I don't. It might not have been Mike. Ken was telling me about it. Um, they were doing something crazy, just off the cuff, like yeah. really weird. And I'm thinking, one, why would you try that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And two, like what? Well, maybe they had some intel or something because that's a big had part. To that's a big part yeah. of it yeah. too. But like, you're not prepared for no. that. Like, who has mice? Barbless one. <laughs> mice in their box ready to fish on a lake on a lake yeah right. in a competition yeah yeah uh, don't quote me on that he, he might listen and be like you're an idiot what well you just replace mouse with you know whatever, whatever it was yeah. right right but still it was just like something off the cuff take yeah, just, take the head off your head banger and douse it in floating pretty much yeah or you could do that but we don't have hang head bangers well that's true yeah, yeah. it does take way too long to tie <laughs> yeah yeah, I'd have maybe like somebody give me some or something right. if I was going to do that, but that's, that's yeah. pretty crazy. Yeah. But like getting back to the tying thing, um, you know, and, and this is kind of reiterated by a lot of us, um, you know, and Gordon said the same thing about your tying techniques. 
because um, people people go crazy and, and tie these crazy things. Um, but some of the things even that I see like across the internet that you know popular tires are tying just don't make sense. And that's not meaning like they don't they don't look good. They might look good, but like some of the flies that you tie are, are like these are going to sink really well. These are going to drift really well. They're not going to be like like a mop sucks at drifting, but it just works. Right. And you're not going to just do that all the time. So like your your method, like you have a do you have a a kind of an outline for your flies as yep. to like what boxes they need to check? Well, it's like when I was talking about default before it goes for your tactics and it also goes for your tying like things that if I was just to sit down and I didn't have any patterns to go off of somebody said time me a stone fly time me a mayfly you know time me this time me that mine would be a couple of materials and most likely tied in the round old school style with nothing on them that would keep a fish from wanting to hit it. So there's nothing to refuse. Like it's not going to have a hot spot. It's not going to be super shiny. It's not going to be super leggy. It just looks like something to eat. Right. <laughs> it doesn't need to look exactly like a hex nymph or exactly like this or exactly like that. So these things eat rocks and sticks. <laughs> yeah. In this I mean, this is my default for tying. It needs to be color. It's color, shape, outline. You know, it's just, it's old school. It, just something that looks like something to eat. Right. And you vary the shades. But I also don't go too big on ribbing. You know, I, I rib a lot, but I use a lot of mono for my ribbing because I don't like the over-segmented look of wire. You know, you look at a, a regular pheasant tail, you run that big copper wire through there six times. It's too much. It's just, hmm. it's just odd looking. Yeah. Like, yeah, a lot of insects are very segmented, but not like that. Not seven right. segments. Well, even the numbers, right. you know, just it's, when you hold it out, that's the first thing your eye hits. It's like that, that severe segmentation of that wire. Now, other people probably feel the same way, but that's my default. Like you, if you, you can create that segmentation by using a little bit bigger mono, wrapping that on there, and then it looks more like a, an actual, more natural. Yeah. But hmm. it doesn't particularly look like any specific thing. It's not harsh either. It just looks like something to eat. Yeah. Hmm. And then your your drift dictates everything else, which is like a completely different mindset than anybody has. In, in the fly fishing world. I wouldn't say anybody, but I, I think I could generalize that. I would say that and, and from the perspective of a fly tire. And uh, a lot of times we tie to the fly tire, not the not the fish. And use stuff. Now, I, but I, on the other hand, I like, I have confidence in flashy stuff. Sure. So it's, that's my confidence thing as, as you, you're a natural guy, but maybe I'll have to rethink that. But, but I mean, there's plenty of guys that are awesome, you know, just phenomenal tires and fishermen and they got flash in just about everything. Right. 
Yeah, you and know, that's it, all that's all personal. That's all personal preference. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I mean I'm I'm seeing it now. It's it's funny that my fly tying, I still when I tie for my videos, when I tie at shows, I'm tying for the fly tire. Yeah. But when I'm tying for myself, it's a box of just thread bodies and pertagons and that kind of stuff. Yeah, if, if I, I feel like if we tied at shows, they'd be like, what are you guys doing here? Like, yeah. What is that? That's thing? why nobody's ever asked me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should. It's like a whole different, yeah. it's a whole different world. Yeah. Well, Miller does it. Miller does it. But That's all Miller ties when he does shows. Yeah. But he's Miller. He's Miller, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he. <laughs> they're not all there to see his fly tying. They're there because he's Miller. All right, we ran out of time for today's episode, but we just couldn't stop with Pat. When we have him in the shop, we want to get the most out of it. So tune back in next week on our next episode as we continue this conversation, and we learn more from Pat on his tying techniques and his fishing techniques that got him on the world team and made him the successful fisherman that he is. Like always, if you're looking to tune into our podcast and uh, you want to find us, we're on iTunes. Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and Apple Podcast. If there's anything else out there that you would want us to get on, just let us know and we'll work on it for you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we hope to see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bugs and Beard Podcast. This podcast was brought to you in part by HolsingersFlyShop.com and Trotted Goods. We truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to our show. If you enjoyed the show, please take a second to smash the like button and subscribe to us. You can find our show on popular podcast apps like Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Until next time, keep your tip up and tight lines. <laughs>